So I wonder to what extent Bitcoin actually undermines the entire paradigm that we've built ourselves on. Uh, I mean, uh, that's that's so cool. Um, I don't know if you meant this, but you said we could reinterpret the Genesis story of the state. And I would say we reinterpret the Genesis story of the state with the Exodus story of the Bible. Okay. And I'm not a particularly religious man, but I, I do think this, the Exodus story is one of the greatest ever told by any human being. And it's this idea of liberation through exit. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Max Borders, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, man, really looking forward to this conversation. Um, I appreciate your patience getting this thing scheduled. I know we had a little bit of back and forth, uh, but I think we're going to have a really interesting conversation today. And just by way of quick introduction, um, you're the author of several books, most recently, uh, you've written the book Underthrow, uh, and then your most popular book is titled The Social Singularity. Um, so I guess to start, maybe we could talk about Underthrow a little bit. <clears throat> now, I when we first started talking about this, I didn't realize Underthrow was kind of like the counterpoint to Overthrow. Uh, right. So there's a, there's a thematic element there, I guess, in the title of the book. And um, you've described it as like a futurist way of tapping into American patriotism. 
Could you tell I me? I think that's fair. Could you tell me a little bit about what that means and why you chose that title in particular? Sure. Yeah. I mean, really, um, there's this, an excellent writer and friend of mine, Michael Gibson, uh, who came up with the term. He sort of coined the term in the, con- in the context of an article called the Nakamoto Consensus, which is a great article. I suggest anybody uh, you know, check that out. But really, this idea of people contracting with each other you know, through consensual relationships would somehow bring down power one agreement at a time. And that really stuck out to me. So when you think about it in those terms, really it becomes, as you said, sort of the inversion of overthrow. So if you think about the French Revolution, say, the French Revolution is a violent overthrow. With underthrow, you can use subversive innovation, cultural change, and all sorts of other vectors of change that are peaceful. And that emphasis on peaceful means it's underthrow. So Gandhi uh, in you know in the 1940s bringing bringing down the British Raj did so through peaceful means and that's really what underthrow is all about in that title that's really cool yeah so was it um well Gandhi was uh, collecting salt by the seashore or something like that when there was a tax on salt so I, I, correct me if I'm wrong wasn't that part of the protest he was doing that he was just collecting salt peacefully whereas the British were trying to tax people on the the production of salt, something like that. Well, that's that's a that's an interesting um, that's a, the the idea that something like that catalyzed the whole movement is is really interesting. It's reminiscent of the American Revolution, which whether whether and to what extent you would call that overthrow or underthrow, I I couldn't say. There was certainly a war and and a revolution came of it. Um, I'm sure they hoped it would be peaceful. But the uh, the Redcoats had other things in mind. But in terms of Gandhi, um, you know, this that that there was this catalyzing event is is really interesting uh, to 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 consider. And I wonder if overthrow is going to require a catalyzing event too. Um, I'm sorry, underthrow. But uh, Gandhi's sort of cultivating this idea of satyagraha in people, satya um, being truth in graha being force forcefulness so f- truth force um you're you're telling a moral truth over and over again that allows you to bring down power because it it enjoys popular support and that is another mechanism of underthrow i think is is quite promising that's very interesting so tr- what was the term truth power yeah truth force i think is a one way of interpreting it satya graha Satya, yeah. Uh, I've heard people talk about, you know, the the denomination of Bitcoin is called Sats, and we look up the mm-hmm. word Sat in Sanskrit. It means something like that, like a a truth, a very powerful. Yeah, thing. that's right. Some uh, integrity, truth, something like that. It's uh, in, in fact, I think in in the Yamas, the Yoga Sutras, the the Yamas, uh, it's the second. The first one is Ahimsa, a which is non. And himsa being violence, so nonviolence and satya together are kind of my jam, and I think the jam of all Bitcoiners, if if you think of it in that in those terms. Yeah, I think it would be very fair to call Bitcoin a bloodless revolution of sorts, right? There's not an an overthrowing of any particular power structure, but there's kind of an undermining of all 
political power structures in general just by changing to a new incentive paradigm. And obviously on the point of integrity and truth, we often refer to Bitcoin as being as corresponding to these things, right? Like Bitcoin, in terms of integrity, well, Bitcoin only does what it says it will do, right? That's basically the only operation of the entire system. And then obviously it's true in the sense that uh, the, the transaction history is unalterable and changeable and arguable, and it is um, open for all to see, right? The, I think it was Heidegger that talked about, he described truth as unconcealedness, which was, I think, derived from the term aletheia or aletheia from the ancient Greeks, which just meant um, something that's totally uncovered, effectively, unconcealedness. And that's what Bitcoin is, right? It's just this unconcealed open source software has there's nothing to hide nothing you can hide inside of the system and it's amazing how subversive that is to political power overall um do you consider bitcoin as like part of i guess do you consider it to be a subversive innovation and then if so is it part of the underthrow kind of thesis absolutely it is the probably the pinnacle of subversive innovation um and satoshi being a subvert the exemplar of subversive innovation they he she whoever they were um and uh, in addition you know some of the people who if not were satoshi certainly informed the paradigm people like nick shabo and hal finney they're they're subversive innovators i mean they are the paradigmatic examples of that even more than someone like travis kalanick the the uh the founder of uber i mean i consider that a subversive innovation too because you had these taxi medallion cartels, right? Um, and no one thought those could ever be upended because they were government established monopolies. But you had this legal gray area in which a, a subversive innovator could operate and brought together some existing technologies, GPS, reputation systems, all of it was stuff that we already had. But Kalanick saw that you could you make ideas have sex and created the uber technology and boy did it ever work i mean certainly uber is not a perfect company it's not a perfectly decentralized system like something like a bitcoin is but it is an example of a constant the way the market process creates iteration cycles and around um particularly in 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 the going into the headwinds of state power and that was just one little example with uber but absolutely, I mean, Bitcoin is, to me, almost the apotheosis of subversive innovation. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, the combining of already existing technologies to create something novel, but many, obviously, Bitcoin was created in the same way. The Gutenberg printing press was created in the same way. Um, and that, that idea of ideas reproducing, procreating, I love that. I think I saw that originally with Matt Ridley's The Rational Optimist. Absolutely. One of the, it's just such a fantastic book. I mean, Ridley is a hero of mine. Um, I mean, even, even sort of being, being able to step back from that meta perspective that he takes on, you know, um, is a species of subversive innovation. Now that's, that's, you know, some people are just, they're mavens. They like to write and think and talk. And I'm one of them. I wish I were more of an active innovator like a Satoshi. But certainly, 
the idea, like almost like my mission is in life is if I can do nothing else but spawn a thousand more Satoshis, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well said. What? So <clears throat> I guess this is kind of a good segue into this idea of self-government. I don't know if you talk about this in Underthrow or, or some of your other books, but moving towards this ideal of individuals being you know, more self-governing, let's say. So less yeah. political power being imposed to organize society and more more of a bottom-up approach. Um, mm -hmm. And I think you've used the terms anarchy versus panarchy mm -hmm. uh, in this area. And so I guess what, if we could define those terms, anarchy and panarchy, and then to what extent are Bitcoiners emblematic of this ideal of, of self-governance? Sure. Um, wow. Okay. Great cluster questions uh, together. So don't let me drop any of them because I really, yeah, I really want to address all of those. Let me step back first and 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 sort of contextualize the discussion maybe for people who are more classical liberal libertarian types. You'll often hear people in sort of competing theoretical camps. Um, fight about whether and to what extent we should have minarchy, which is the idea of a minimal state that is a, nevertheless a monopoly. And then anarcho-market anarchism or anarcho-capitalism, if you like, which is more of a, a competitive version, non-monopolistic version of that. And I have to say, uh, over the course of my life and my the cultivation of my own thinking, I've passed more for, and from a theoretical standpoint from minarchy to anarcho-capitalism or, or market anarchism. But what, one, one day I had a sort of moment, this a realization, um, and I started calling myself what, um, an asymptotic anarchist, okay? And that sounds like a funny term, but, the, and by the way, I'm terrible at math. So people who are the math heads out there, um, you know, like your, your Bitcoin devs or, or whoever, the people that are good at math may make fun of me. But as I understand it, an asymptote is a curve and you're a math guy too, because you come from a finance background. So please disabuse me of this ridiculous notion if it's bad. But as I understand it, an asymptote is a curve that approaches a line or an axis and never actually quite meets it. Yeah. Right. So it's. Okay. Um, so the idea there is it's a metaphorical way of describing like, okay, we may never get to a condition of anarchy, which the mo the moral substrate of that relationships, all peaceful and harmonious relationships, no compulsion. So el the elimination of comp compulsion would be fully realized in, 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 in an anarchic state of affairs, but we may ne never actually get there. Mm -hmm. It's not like we're going to ever have some great constitutional moment, at least not in our lifetimes, like they did in 1789 or something like that. And even then the constitution is impo was imposed and we can get back for, to that in a moment. It wasn't consensual, it was imposed. Um, nevertheless, I always think of it in these terms. There's n there's never going to be a, a theoretical instantiation that becomes actualized. 
we're always going to be situated in what Hayek called the circumstances of time and place mm -hmm. with Leviathan powers, with mafias, with criminal elements, with all manner of groups that are trying to vie for power. So what we're always trying to do is simultaneously is, is conquer the mind. Mm -hmm. So we, we want to, we want to swear off the threat of violence and begin to conquer um, a conquest is perhaps not the best term because I really want to emphasize this idea of satyagraha, mm -hmm. of sort of existing in truth and exuding it. And, and that includes a uh, you know, species of moral truth. Mm -hmm. But eventually we get to a place where people see the the beautiful flourishing and harmony that comes out of establishing consensual relationships and slowly over time we can use subversive innovation to gain rapid constituency groups around certain kinds of technologies say like bitcoin bitcoin was able to attract um through both incentives and through a kind of uh, moral north star people to its system and I don't want us to forget that it wasn't always about just money. It was also about morality. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you would agree with that. Mm -hmm. So certainly the incentives matter, but so also does the moral substrate that has the, the, moral, um, the moral core that informs the Satoshi white paper. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, if you go, go back and read the work of Nick Shabo, for example, you'll see so much of this beautifully sort of morally informed cypherpunk considerations, mm -hmm. the kind of law that he sought to embrace that was about uh, reconciling frictions, say, with common law and, and how that's at odds with Justinian law, which is imposed law of statutes, you know, wise men imposing statutes on people. It's a very different species of law. But you can see in Shabo's writing and, and that of the other cypherpunks, this, this moral core. Um, and so in any case... This idea of asymptotic anarchy is just about being realistic about what we're dealing with. We're always having to confront, circumvent, or otherwise address power. So you could think of it as like bees versus bears, right? We we you know we decentral decentralists, as I like to call people who are into Bitcoin and and other uh, decentralizing technologies. Um, believe in the power of truth and consensual relationships, and so we come out together as a hive mind, and 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 sort of attack the bear, which is sort of symbolic of Leviathan power. Yeah, that's super, very well said. Um, and I, I to, I guess before I give you some feedback on that, can you rope in the term panarchy? Oh yeah. Yep. And Thank you. What and what that means uh, in the context of what you're saying here? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of ways to uh, interpret panarchy, but I think panarchy is pa panarchy and anarchy in a or in some sense reconcilable. Okay, because each is at its foundation based on choice. Panarchy has a pragmatic element, though. So let's say. Um, Let's say you and I decide, you know, that we want to go off and live in a hippie commune or a kibbutz or something. We convert to Judaism and we want to go to Israel and join a kibbutz. Okay. 
and conversion to Judaism. All the Jews are out there laughing. He's like, we don't do that. But anyway, yeah, you can ask the rabbi three or four times and sometimes they'll accept you. But we go off and we join a kibbutz, right? And we, what we know about kibbutz is that it's highly redistributive, okay? So if we accept through consent, through a multilateral contract, the idea of joining this kibbutz, then we agree to give up, you know, 75% of our income to, to put towards the good of, of the kibbutz. Now, people might say, oh, that's just commie crap, right? But the fact is, there are a lot of people out there. There Pluralism is both, there is a factual pluralism, positive pluralism. People are different from one to the next out there. And so people are going to have different moral political sensibilities. And so panarchy really acknowledges that, but it puts choice first. So if you want to opt into a situation whereby you want to join a kibbutz or form a little Iceland or looks like Sweden or something like that, you can do that, but you had you, but you're doing that contractually. You're doing that first through consent and you're being respected as an agent in doing so first. Panarchy acknowledges that and, and, and seeks to create a kind of framework or superstructure. Um, some of your readers might like Robert Nozick's Anarchy State and Utopia, Part three, the part two of that book is the most famous part. You know, it's about how, why, how and why redistribution is unjust and, you know, this and that. But part three is really interesting in that it seeks to accommodate these different conceptions of the good for moral political structures. It doesn't assume just a checklist of how things can work. So panarchy could be, if you really think about it, a species of anarchy. But it really seeks to uh, enable, through legal means, people to create and opt into different kinds of moral political communities, some of which will be communal, some of which will be religious, some of which will be capitalist, um, or hybrids of all of these. And so um, if you think of that as embedded in basic law, in some, in some say, uh, ac actual social contract, the largest or a sort of superordinate social contract would be one that spawns these jurisdictions or membership clubs, if you like, or civil associations that each of us can enter. We can all have our own moral political structures and systems, and they have to be tested through sustainability, right? It's like you can't impose them on anybody else. You have to use what Deirdre McCloskey calls sweet talk and beckon them to come into your social order. Right. And if you can't, well, then you fail. And so it's a Darwinian system in that regard, but you can't impose it. So that's the difference between panarchy and anarchy. Yeah, that has a lot of, um, it sounds like it's characterized closely with what we would consider in just free market competition, right? That yeah. producers of goods and services can't impose, like a, a car dealer can't beat you over the head to buy his car. He has to make you a good deal and sweet talk you, as you say, and you know talk you into it, persuade you. Um, and that's pretty much a clear moral intuition for us in every industry in the world. But for some reason, when it comes to statism, I guess just because of the nature of what it is, right? It's the monopolist on force that we somehow don't, we fail to see how using that force to then forcefully onboard customers or prevent customers from exiting 
you know, as in uh, the case of the U.S., we have the exit tax, for instance. If you decide the service you're being provided is not up to snuff or you're being overcharged and want to leave, well, you get taxed. Um, for some reason, our moral intuitions don't apply to the industry of statism as they do with other industries. And so, I don't know, I've thought it's a very kind of pernicious problem. And I wonder if it is just like, as you said, we live, we're inhabitants of physical reality. So we also have to, we always have to concern ourselves with the realities of physical power and, you know, the threat of physical power being wielded against us. So we, we mobilize this giant monopoly on power called the state. But, but it seems like the, the temptation for people inside of the state to bend that apparatus to their own gain is almost wholly irresistible, right? And that seems like the recurrent pattern across history is we vested in an institution with absolute power. And as Lord Acton said, it corrupts absolutely. And we're constantly trying to figure out how do we, <laughs> how can we keep the peace yet not put this, not vest absolute power in this institution that inevitably becomes corrupt over time and then obviously collapses as a result of that corruption. Yeah. I mean, you get people, you get, I mean, I don't know about you, but, um, I'm, I'm probably a bit older than you. I'm, I'm certain of it, but we both share probably throughout school being taught that monopolies were bad, right? That they have higher prices, lower quality, restricting choices. And we gotta, we gotta bust the trust, right? We gotta bust these trusts, yeah. which are monopolies. Yeah. Um, and so we ended up trusting these authoritarian powers who are going to, or the, who claim they're going to be angels and we know there are no angels. And so the corruption process, it's like, once you have the power, once you have the ring, very much like Frodo or Bilbo, you have to resist its temptation. And over time, people can't, particularly in representative democracies where you get, um, sort of these perverse or unholy alliances between corporations and governments that create and sorry to use the F word on your show, but a species of fascism, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and so you have, because you know people throw around the term fascism all the time, yeah. and 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 they just don't know what it means. But it really, liter literally, um, if you listen to Mussolini, he he describes it very very distinctly as the marriage of corporation and state. Yes, subordinating cor corporations to state ends, right. and of course. States aren't are are nothing but hypostatization, mm -hmm. which is like states are just an aggregation of people, individual people, lording power over other people. Mm -hmm. You know, back in um, back in the the uh, uh, agricultural, not the agricultural revolution, but in in the um, early agrarian societies, mm -hmm. right when we when humanity went from hunter gatherer arrangements to settled agriculture because they figured out how to plant. Mm -hmm. You also had brigands who could figure out how to come and take your, your grain. That's right. And so the idea, this idea of a protection racket mm -hmm. is a very rational, it's almost Hobbesian in the way it comes across, mm -hmm. but it's, we, it's almost like backing ourselves into Hobbesianism. So hungry brigands would come around and say, they're bigger, badder motherfuckers coming along. 
And here's what we're going to do. We're going to protect you from them and exchange and make you an offer you can't refuse. You're going to, we're going to protect you, but you're going to give us a portion of your grain every couple of months. Right. And so that's, yeah, it's a protection racket. And that evolved into the great states of of the uh, early uh, agricultural period. That um, there's a great um, thinker named um, James um, James C. Scott, who has a book uh, called Against the Grain. He also has a book called Two Cheers for Anarchism, and. <clears throat> This idea of the protection racket, this the rise of the state as protection racket. Of course, you know, Hobbes came along after that and said, you know, if you don't submit your ultimate freedom to sovereign to a sovereign, life will be nasty, brutish, and short because you just fight with each other. But the truth is, we have incentives not to fight with each other and to co- coordinate, co- collaborate, and play the infinite game, not the zero sum game. And politics, of course, is the zero sum game. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, a, it's a great point. I um, I wonder too because I, when I think through these lines, I end up just running into the wall of incentives. Like people are are essentially going to do whatever is profitable. So even when you're describing, yeah, we have these incentives to cooperate, right? Increase the division of labor, increase our productivity, increase aggregate wealth. But as aggregate wealth grows, aren't we simultaneously increasing the incentives for, I think you called them the boggins, the the people that want to expropriate that wealth, right? The more wealth is actually being created, you're actually increasing the profitability of coercion in a way, right? Like, especially if it's concentrated in one place. So I'm not so sure we can do much about that human nature, right? It's like if, if there's an opportunity to take it, someone's going to take it. So yeah. the best thing we can do is make wealth really hard, expensive, risky, difficult to take effectively. And we've tried, and we've done that to a large extent, right? We have the rule of law and we have, um, you know, anti-theft technologies, things like this. Um, but it seems like that, especially at the state level, so long as that opportunity is there, someone's just always going to take it. And so I, I, and that makes sense to me, the way, like the genesis of the state in the early agrarian society is like, okay, for the first time in history, we're settled, we're creating an economic surplus. Well, who's going to protect the surplus, right? I'm sure there's plenty of people that were still hunters and gatherers out there that saw, hey, there's a bunch of food in that shed over there. Let's just go take it. So it makes sense. You would have to protect some type of, create some type of protection racket. But then I started to wonder in my mind, like, how, what would it be like? So in that sense, the state is almost like a, a free market enterprise in a way. It's like you needed the protection. But then you get into this weird incentive trap where the protector sort of charges monopoly prices, right? It says, you're going to pay me what you're going to pay me, or I'm going to hurt you, or I'm not going to protect you. It's very mafioso, right? It's exactly right. I mean, it's based in fear. Yeah. So it's rational to subordinate yourself or to submit to this power. Yes. It's absolutely rational. That's why it's an evolved system. Like there is a sense in which we, you know, we want to come across, come back and say, well, this is all immoral. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there's an old saying, I think it's from Bertolt Brecht, the the playwright. It's, 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 uh, um, 
eat first, then ethics, <laughs> right? So it's rational in the economic sense of like, like we got to live and there are different means of, of living and the biggest, baddest guy is going to come around. The brigand mm -hmm. is going to come around and say, I'm going to make you a deal. Um, now, that is a form of consent, but it's consent under duress. So it's not the kind of consent I'm talking about or want to talk about. Well, yeah, it's voluntary, um, but not consensual. I think this is the correct right. distinction, right? You're doing yeah. it voluntarily, but because there's a threat of force backing it, it's not actually consent. As if someone yeah. hugging you in the alley to take your wallet, like you hand them your wallet voluntarily, but it's not consensual, obviously. Well, and this is why we saw the rise of militia groups over in the intervening years, right? So remember the, um, and I just came up with the metaphor, so it's going to have its limits. I don't want to stretch them too far, but the idea of the, the, the bees versus the bear, right? The brigand is the bear. The brigand hierarchy is, is the bear. And we can have, what does distributed or decentralized defense look like? And we have to start thinking in those terms, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, because we'll easily degenerate into warlordism uh, if we have some sort of, you know, vast economic collapse or something, you know, in, you know, they're, they're comparative leviathans. And so you can get you can get bad outcomes. You can get lawless anarchy, which nobody wants. Because mm -hmm. um, lawless anarchy definitely invites people to um, see who's the biggest, baddest Leviathan and pits them in, into a contest of warlordism. We see that around the world to this day, those dynamics. Mm -hmm. Instead, if we can um, maintain a condition of relative prosperity and and have people see the benefits of playing a positive sum game rather than a negative sum game or the infinite game versus the finite game that is really that is the breakthrough that is the breakthrough of people who grok bitcoin yes um and yeah and that protects us this idea of sovereignty around you know around a moral core Yes, yes. No. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touch screen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. I hear you on that. I have a couple of questions. So one, I try to replay the genesis of the state in that early agrarian society with recourse to something like Bitcoin. And you don't have to, I guess, do that. You could say really anyone within one of these protection rackets, which would be any economic actor inside of a modern state, right? It's pay your taxes or we'll go to jail. It's the same theme as the, the early agrarian protection racket, just 
in a new wrapper. Mm -hmm. What does that game look like in a world with access to something like Bitcoin though, where it's, if people are over, uh, extorted or overly expropriated from, then don't they start selling whatever else they have and moving into this wealth or this, I don't want to call Bitcoin wealth, uh, medium for preserving and moving purchasing power. Mm -hmm. You have to move some of your economic energy into this unassailable medium and then go somewhere else, right? Go to a, a jurisdiction that treats you better. Um, wh whatever, you get a lot of options all of a sudden, right? You can put the private key on your brain, cross a border with all your, your wealth in your mind, right? With all the plausible deniability that comes with. So I just wonder like if it almost calls into question the Genesis story, not calls into question, we would reinterpret the Genesis story of the state if economic actors had access to something like Bitcoin. So I wonder to what extent Bitcoin actually undermines the entire paradigm that we built ourselves on. Uh, I mean, uh, that's that's so cool. Um, I don't know if you meant this, but you said we could reinterpret the Genesis story of the state. And I would say we reinterpret the Genesis story of the state with the Exodus story of the Bible. Okay. And I'm not a particularly religious man, but I, I do think this, the Exodus story is one of the greatest ever told by any human being. Yeah. And it's this idea of liberation through exit. Yeah. Okay. In other words, um, you know, um, when we leave a state of affairs that isn't working for us, perhaps to start something new, that is, that creates a liberatory force. So when you, you know, when you talk about like, what if you had Bitcoin back then in those early days, it's really saying, and I'm, I'm using the econ the economist's term here of comparing something to transaction costs, mm -hmm. right? The idea is to reduce transaction costs, that this facilitates cooperation and exchange, creating both individual value for all the participants in the arrangement, as well as an aggregate value. Okay, for society, that's the idea of trend of you know reducing transaction costs is, is something that economists love to play with. Yeah. Now, if you think about the idea of raising predation costs mm -hmm. and reducing transaction costs, now you're talking about a different game theoretical set of optima. Yes, and that is a beautiful vision. It's it's a very systems thinking kind of masculine vision, yeah. but when you start to talk about it in moral terms, in terms of being good and generous, and 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 map it onto our our more universal moral sensibilities, then I think we start to 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 paint a picture of the promise of Bitcoin certainly, but also the promise of decentralizing power and finding all the means we possibly can to be more like bees and less like bears. That's, I think, fantastically said, and I love the way uh, Bitcoin is addressing it from both ends, right? Increasing the cost of predation, but also reducing transaction cost or lowering the cost of cooperation, you might say. And so it's a very yeah. fundamental reshaping of human incentive systems. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's funny you you mentioned the Bible because that was actually my next question. Um, and real quick on the story of Exodus, and I'm I'm not 
Bible expert either, but as I understand it, it was this is when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt into the desert. Mm-hmm. They wandered for 40 years. Um, the, then there's a lot of lessons there too, because initially they were sort of distraught. Mm-hmm. They, they had all this freedom, they had all this liberation, but they didn't know what to do with it. And many of them actually clamored for the the tyranny again. They said, I, you know, at least I was fed and I knew what to do. And so yeah. kind of this- Because they're in the about. desert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, anyways, yeah, great point. Like it's a, it's a very, probably one of the most profound stories of human liberation ever told, which is why it's in the biblical corpus. Um, but the question I would ask is, you know, we mentioned earlier as a means of increasing the cost of predation, we have made strides, right? We have the rule of law. We have certain anti-theft technologies. Um, I would say we even have developed kind of just morality itself or ethics even, you might say. Like, it's not cool to steal someone's stuff. You'd get sort of socially frowned upon if you were caught doing it. You know, things like this prevent people from engaging in theft and other things like that. Unless you're at a Black Lives Matter protest in 2020. (laughs) And I'm not trying to, uh, you know, probably people call me racist or whatever for saying that, but like you... If you put a blanket of of morality around bad behavior, um, it's as good as incentivizing it, you know. And so we're seeing the ramifications of that around um, around protest movements that involve uh, violence and looting, and that's not good. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, carry on, carry on. I'm sorry. To Agreed completely. And it, we have many justifications, right? We still think, obviously, printing money is theft, right? Inside of a legal monopoly, we justify that upside down in every direction, right? Um, mm-hmm. I something saw something so insane today. Justin Trudeau uh, threatening Canadian grocery stores because there's been price inflation in groceries. That if they don't <laughs> reduce their prices, he's going to impose additional taxation. It's like only in clown world could, it, could the idea <laughs> that the consequences of theft via inflation could be combated with theft via taxation. Like it's just like, we're going to fix the theft with more theft. So it, I don't know, it, it twists the human mind into knots. And so to your point on the Black Lives Matter protest, it's like all of a sudden if this thing is socially, socially, people are uh, socially allowing it. it. It's weird how the mob mentality can kind of take over and you get really bad outcomes. So that, that's kind of an aside. The question I want to ask though, so we have rule of law, we have anti-theft technologies, morality, ethics, et cetera, whatever to protect, to enshrine or insulate this uh, idea of private property, right? That each person gets mm-hmm. to keep what they earn effectively. Mm-hmm. What is the role of religion? Um, I would say specifically like Christ, this idea that we, we've promoted this guy to like the ultimate position of mythological hero. Mm-hmm. Does that play a role in kind of like steering our moral intuitions about what is right, what is wrong? Is it kind of like a, a social technology? I mean, I, that may sound like a bad way to frame it, but um, as just a means of getting people to play by a certain rule set that's not necessarily an incentive. You're not, it's not a carrot or a stick, right? It's just this story that's kind of permeated culture. Do you think that plays some role in guiding people's sort of moral intuitions about what's right and what's wrong and uh, in preserving private property? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, 
it's it's the funniest thing. I um, I'm tonight. Uh, I'm going to sit among into a, a Christian men's reading group as like the the only non-believer there, right? Um, but I am interested in how um, how Christians, you know, through the lens of doctrine, tr- seek to become better men, better fathers better better husbands and so on right um and i because i want to i want to see what patterns emerge in in christianity that map onto my own and and also i'm my fiance is jewish right so i'm learning a lot about judaism just because it's like you can't help it right our daughter is because it's matrilineal she's she's like de facto jew right Mm -hmm. so now I got two Jews in my life, so I'm learning all this stuff. And what's in, what I'm finding is I'm, I'm trying to answer your question in a way that um, it's not to say that Christianity as a religious hierarchy hasn't been terrible throughout human history. The, the, you know, there, there's a lot of that. Um, but I think at the end of the day, the way you interpret the uh, Christian doctrine you know, one of the most important things that Jesus says is love thy neighbor as thyself, mm-hmm. right? This is an echo of the same thing that you hear in almost every religious tradition around the world, instantiating in 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 um, Sanskrit, it would be ahimsa, mm-hmm. nonviolence, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's, in more, it's in a more extended version of that. It could be uh, Hillel the elder, the rabbi, who was purportedly stood on one foot and said, "Can you recite the in- entire to to the goy? If you can recite the whole Torah on one foot, um, I'll convert to Judaism." Right, and he stood on uh, purportedly, I guess, stood on one foot and said, "said that which is hateful to your uh, to you, do not do to your neighbor." We see this over and and. As a moral stru- sub cultures somehow, for, in a good way, infects every single culture around the world. Te- technologies like Bitcoin to say, we're going to build that into the technology, which is a weird kind of thing to think about. But like, um, we don't, you don't want anybody taking your property. I mean, you can always go up to someone who has Bitcoin and hold a gun to their head and say, Give me those private keys, three, two, one, and you know, threaten to blow their brains out if they don't give you what's in in there. Mm-hmm. So there's always a way for predators to to act like predators. But when we raise those predation costs, that's awesome. But another way to raise predation costs is to bring back morality. So the weird way of answering your question is I, I don't think it has been a net good for society for people to abandon religious uh religious uh, affiliation in in this country in particular so we've seen a diminishment and i believe in some sense we've seen a diminishment of people using some variation of the golden rule to guide their lives and instead they replace religion with politics the church of state mm-hmm. right and so what we see now is People replacing moral practice, like being compassionate to others that you see need help, 
We say we outsource our cares, our responsibilities to distant capitals, and we say, I pay my taxes and I'm obliging some distant bureaucrat to instantiate my morality for me. Then when you legislate morality, you lose the practice. You forget how to be good. Mm-hmm. And so um, in answer to your question, I think the, the, the mythopoetic dimension of Jesus as peaceful being was extremely useful for the social order, even if I don't believe it theologically or doctrinally uh, in other ways. I think it was... The, I think basically the Judeo-Christian tradition, you know, aspects of the, um, um, I forgot the name, the blanket term for for Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, they're related under umbrella of the kind of, you have the Abrahamic religions and then you have those three in, in, in the, in Asia. Yeah. But all of them share these characteristics that are important to to human social organization, mm-hmm. happiness, harmony, and prosperity, basically. Right. Which is arguably why they succeed, right? As they're they're nurturing this idea of individualism in a way, right? That that gives us individual private property rights, the division of labor, you know, peace and prosperity, effectively. I mean, I. Who knows to say, I guess that's just me hypothesizing to say that's why they succeeded, but it it seems to make sense, right? That the ideal, the ideology which most promotes human flourishing would tend to be the one that kind of wins out over time or the ideologies. Now, obviously that's not true persistently, but over the longest arc of history seems to be somewhat true. Um, And I agree with you strongly, actually, that when you take in the US, for instance, like we've taken... God largely out of the equation, but that creates some kind of, I don't know, ideological power vacuum. Like the way I consider it is that humans are almost like mythological creatures. Like we need to be plugged into some story, right? That's how, mm-hmm. that's how we accord ourselves. It's how, it's how we uh, lower the cost of trust. Actually. I think there's an interesting parallel where Nick Zabo actually describes money as the trust minimized asset, right? The thing that you can use it you need to trust people the least, right? If if you give me the gold, I don't need to trust that you're going to do the thing. You paid me, so I'll go do the thing. And if you have a common morality, it's also more cost-effective to establish trust, right? You're you're lowering the cost of, of inter- interpersonal trust effectively. And so when you take that, you unplug God from the equation, you get this ideological power vacuum that is filled, you know, you take out G-O-D and you get G-O-V basically. And all of a sudden <laughs> are worshiping the state and, um, you know, getting wearing peace to Balaji Srinivasan. Yes, 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 yes. I think. I'd, yeah, no doubt. So I have a, a, the question I have about this, and that's a, that's quite the rabbit hole to try and understand to what extent we are mythological creatures plugged into this distributed cultural fabric through story. You know, that's a very interesting thing. Um, to what extent do you think material incentives give rise to moral orders? Is it because, you know, if you're a hunter and gatherer, well, it was moral to be the number one hunter killer in the group. That was like considered the the apex of morality in that situation because you can win the most food for the, the clan or the tribe. Mm-hmm. Obviously, our moral intuitions have changed over time. Is that 
to what extent is that a product of our changing technological realities or material incentives? Yeah, these are all intertwined. Um, so, um, in the social singularity, uh, which is the first book uh, in a series of books that have this through line of decentralization. Um, you know, I talk about the interrelationships uh, among among. Um, let me see if I can remember them. It's uh, this book came out in 2018, so it's been a while. But this, I the idea here is we have rules, also called institutions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, those can be good rules or bad rules, depending on what 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 the incentive system it creates, right? Mm-hmm. But rules create incentives, so we know that. Mm-hmm. We also are we also have um, our genetics, who we are as human beings. We inherited basically being cavemen and women. We're paleolithic creatures. We have paleolithic brains. You know, we can dress it up all day long, but we uh, we were evolved in a certain kind of state of affairs, mm-hmm. and we have to acknowledge that because I think to to a very great degree, this is what um, encourages can encourage predation. Mm-hmm. You know, as we look out for tribe, we also it also creates egalitarian instincts in people. You ought to share, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because in a tribal situation, slow trade, if Somebody gathered and somebody hunted, you need protein and you need uh, carbohydrates. You know, sharing with the clan was at a sub Dunbar, you know, below 150 people. That's what kept the clan alive. So, those, there, there are different sort of moral sensibilities in those different contexts. And as we evolve through time, those change. So, you have technological change, you have institutional change, you don't have much in the way of Paleolithic. Uh, of our paleolithic brain change, so we have our evolution that's that 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 maps onto all this stuff, um, or integrates with it in some way in like vacillating tandems. We have culture and we have morality. You might combine culture and morality, but essentially um, they can be decoupled. So if you have those five things and you think about how those things interrelate, it's um, you, you can't pull them apart. You can't, they're inextricably bound up with one another in, and they create their own, not only incentives, um, because sometimes incentives come out of uh, morality or culture, right? So like, I love climate change. I mean, I love being a climate change, a person who fights against climate change. I I, I hate fossil fuels, right? Mm-hmm. That is uh, what this theorist uh, Rob Henderson calls luxury goods, right? In fossil fuels now, this idea of luxury goods is something that is like, it's, you know, people of relative wealth like to hold a view because they don't see how it affects the poorest among us if it were instantiated, right? So it's a luxury good. And luxury goods tend to replace uh, Veblen goods, which is like, you know, my my pretty, my big old, you know, muscle car or whatever. Yeah. Um, these days, to signal your that you're an elite, you have to take on these sort of luxury, the luxury beliefs, and you know, like, like fighting climate change is one of them. Is it like? Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's vir- virtuous signaling where the costs are borne primarily on the poor. Right. That's that's the twist. Um. So yeah, it's like uh, 
you know, we're constantly fighting these, you know, these forms of irrationality that are baked into our brains. Uh, you know, it's like it is totally rational to be egalitarian shares in a clan context. But when you scale to the level of society, you have to think about production and trade. Right. We weren't necessarily born to think about production and trade uh, because when you're operating in clans, sub Dunbar, it's a very different set of dynamics, yeah. economically speaking. Right. Um, shirking behavior. You have to punish shirking behavior. Everybody has to work. Everybody has to contribute. All that kind of stuff. It's very communist. Yeah. But communism works with less than 150 people. Yes. It's just when you try to scale it beyond that, that it goes to shit. You have to, you have to have uh, production and uh, exchange, sustainable patterns of, of production and exchange. That's really well said. I love the the inextricable knot you describe between these things. Um, yeah. Very much so, like a technological paradigm can change incentives, but also um, the morality that may emerge from that can also be an incentive in and of itself, right? You may want to appear a certain, or you want to be trusted by someone, so you have an incentive to behave. Um, you know, like a lot of, I guess this is how religion is passed down from parents to children often is the children have an incentive if they want the approval of their parents well they need to adhere to whatever the religious doctrine that their parent is um pushing them towards so it's it's a i think you did a great job of describing this like complex system that we inhabit and it's not there's not linear area you. causality it's always feedback yeah feedback i mean and you could just you when you just you, you start to i mean intellectually or theoretically start to pull the thread out of the sweater just encounter so many different, you know, aspects to this. It's like, um, just let's take Bitcoin again. Cause we, you know, we love Bitcoin. I sure, I sure as heck love Bitcoin. I know you do. Um, and what you get there is with, with time, uh, the, the way it changes, a deflationary system changes time preference, mm -hmm. right? Um, you have Gresham, Gresham's law phenomena and stuff like that that are secondary effects, and we can talk about that if you want to at some point. But, but at the end of the day, the idea that Bitcoin can be a moral teacher is a really strange thing to think about. A lot of people say, "Oh, it's just an incentive system, or it's just a you know store of value, or a medium of exchange, or it's this, or it's that, or it's a digital commodity." Bitcoin is a moral teacher. How about that? But it is because the incentives shape our behavior yes and this is why i was going back to the idea of moral practice this is what i don't like this is some this is one of the big beefs i have with western the western ethical tradition is it tends to be and i love the enlightenment i'm a creature of the enlightenment uh, in my intellectual development but i also know that there are limitations um for western ethics it tends to be abstracted like a rule that you pluck from the sky when you need to resolve some sort of ethical conundrum. No, this is what this is what the Eastern practitioners can teach us. That it's about conscious, continuous practice in thought, word, and deed. You have to be being good is the same as getting better at mixed martial arts, getting better at yoga, getting better at any other practice. You have to practice. You have to do it over and over again. You have to think about it. You have to, um, you have to talk about it, and you have to behave daily and reflect on that. 
that cultivates us as moral beings. Mm-hmm. When we outsource our, and this is what we were talking about earlier, when we outsource that to distant capitals, because you know it's the church of state, and we think that that compassion is outsourcing our responsibility for our fellow man to distant capitals and say, I pay my taxes and those rich people should pay more. We are absolving ourselves of that opportunity to practice, to become better moral beings. Yes. So the incentive system of that the state creates is a lot of amorality, if not immorality. Mm-hmm. No, it's certainly immorality for, for political actors. Yeah, certainly immoral. Well, to the extent that theft is immoral, the state is immoral, right? It's generating mm-hmm. all of its revenues through theft. But further, I think to your point, it's also inculcating this perhaps immorality in taxpayers and the citizens that are just abdicating their responsibility, saying, I paid yes. taxes, I did my duty, you figure it out. And that, mm-hmm. again, for me here, there's a there's a disconnect from truth because you can't actually give up responsibility for yourself. Like you're still going to have to be the one that puts two feet on the ground when you wake up in the morning and puts pant on one leg at a time and feeds yourself. Like you have to own yourself in the world. Like you are actually responsible for yourself. It doesn't matter what types of transactions you engage in what type of institutions you sign up for. Like you can't actually abdicate your responsibility, even though you may think you can. And so, and I love that you're you're framing that moral development as this constant continuous process. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. It's actually, a, I think it's a principle for st- strategic living that the warrior sage Miyamoto, Miyamoto Musashi, hope I'm saying his first name correctly, put forth. And he said that the way is in training and the way in that you know the east the east is like the Tao. it's the thing which cannot speak it's you know like a divinity a divine um a divinity of sorts i guess you would say and he was saying that the way is in training like it's constant preparation everything you do every day you're preparing to live you're preparing to fight you're preparing to train to love to whatever it may be and you have to just embrace that and um I don't know, for me, that that particular quote gave a lot of meaning to all the all the monotony and all the suffering and all the hardships in life. It's like, oh, this is just part of the process. Like you need to take in, it might be boring, you might not want to do it, it might be hard, but it's all part of that process of preparing to be better for the next time you encounter this situation um, or a similar situation. And I, I just have to throw this in there too, because as you're describing what we're like, it reminded me of another one of my favorite quotes, that humans have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technologies, which is why we're so damn confused, I guess. Modern <laughs> age. Yeah. Um, sure. I mean, and, and, and look, we're warty creatures. It's like our genetics don't give a shit about our morality, you know, <laughs> it's, right. uh, they do to a degree. I think there, there are, I'd ha- I have to think about this in a lot of ways. I think they're genetic dispositions. Um, there's a philosophical tradition called in- intuitionism, which means we kind of already know what's right and wrong. And I think there's some truth to that, but you'd have to, you'd have to see it through a Darwinian lens, right? right? Um, 
which is why we have in-group and out-group behavior that differs, right? right? Like it, it's, it would be unthinkable to, to harm someone in your tribe, to be a predator to someone in tribe because they contribute to the good of, of the tribe, right? Right. In, in, in a clan setting. Yes. But at the same time, it's like that tribe with the funny markings or the funny skin color or the mm. funny eye color or, or, or they're trying to, you know, attack us and take our stuff mm -hmm. so that they can survive. We have developed this, this, you know, predilection to violence yes. and, and to be suspicious of difference. Mm -hmm. And that is not entirely an, an immoral way of looking at the world. In a certain context, we have to acknowledge that, that is absolutely the way. Otherwise, you're just going to get killed by a, uh, a, another tribe who's going to come along and try to take your your guinea fowl and your your pigs and your your and your women, <laughs> right? Right, right? And so, um, and they're going to leave you dead to do so. So, you know, I'm not I'm not sitting here saying we don't have to defend that that. that part of this idea of sovereignty, which we haven't talked about yet, but sovereignty isn't about defense and retaliation. It must be, but that it must be put in its violence must be put in its place. And the initiation of violence is what we have to resist mm -hmm. in some sense, uh, if we want to create a moral order and find others who are willing to suspend the initiation of violence and accept a moral order, a similar moral, moral order that is the basis of a, a new civilization, at least one I think you and I would hope to see. Um, but there's no doubt we have to defend ourselves. There's no doubt we have to go to war. And as the as the warrior monk you 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 spoke about, the Japanese warrior monk said, we have to always be training in this regard. Yes. Um, there's and there's a, there's a holiness. We have to sacralize that. So in all the ways we can train to become more virtuous and more excellent, we have to sacralize that too. And centralization saps us of that. Right. It desacralizes it. It makes us, I don't know, shittier. And it's yeah. it shows. <laughs> yeah, the, the the book, The Sovereign Individual, it talks often, often calling it the nanny nation state mm -hmm. and describes how it's infantilizing people, right? It's like, yeah, I think, oh, I, I don't need to worry about my health care or my social security or my retirement. I just keep paying into this government funded, you know, subsidized program and I'm taken care of and I vote for the guy and I don't need to have an opinion on different things. It's like you're, again, that person is not facing up to the realities of being like an adult in the world. They're just kind of abdicating all of this to another institution. Well, and not, and with, with money, it's yeah. like the Keynesians, uh, it's funny how the Keynesians are always simultaneously um, have embraced this sort of clown world economic doctrine, right? Right. And on the other, they tend also to be um, anti-capitalist in a way or anti-consumerist. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you can't hold both of these in juxtaposition for too long without yeah. recognizing the contradiction because Keynesianism is based on consumption. Yes. Right? Whereas... Say's law in Austrian economics is about thrift and savings. Yeah. It's not to say you won't ever consume, right. but the incentives are to save and and be thrifty and not eat the seed corn. And Man, the yes. Keynesians are like, eat the seed corn, eat the yes. seed corn. Yes. And I'm like, uh-uh, no, 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 no. 
Um, yeah. I'm sure that there are a million economists out there going, you don't know what you're talking about. We have a PhD in all these mathematical models and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, no, nah, no, I, 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 you're in the incentive systems that you're creating make us more consumerist, more interested in debt spending. And of course, the adulteration of our money contributes to that in great measure. Absolutely. And, um, I, you know, it's basically a pseudoscience that's intended to justify the monopolization and printing of money, basically. Yeah. And all of the mental gymnastics to get there are just truly mind-boggling. Uh, <laughs> not only are they telling you to eat the seed corn, but, you know, when the economy goes into recession, they will print more money so you can buy more seed corn to get the economy started again. Mm -hmm. It's really, really bizarre. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Okay, we so last time we met on here, we were kind of outlining this conversation and I think you brought up something that I wanted to talk about. Uh, you mentioned Alexander Bard's notion of narratology. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, I actually don't know, nothing, I know nothing about this. I know who Mr. Bard is. I've spoken to him once. I have not talked to him about narratology. So I'm just wondering, how does what is narratology and how does that fit into what we've been discussing today? Um, I guess in particular, as it relates to mythology and guiding human moral intuitions yeah, I mean, I I, I don't want to bastardize anything that that Bard says, and um, I've he's a Swedish guy, and we've developed a correspondence, personal correspondence via email, and I've been very much enjoyed becoming friends with him. Um, I'm much more radical, and I, I I guess in my anarchy than he is, and he's much more European in his philosophical um, training than I. But that that invites really interesting dis discussion and exchange. But when you go back to this uh, sort of, uh, I think four Greek words, pathos, ethos, logos, and mythos. Mythos, yeah. yes. You have, again, really interesting interplay between all those. And so how those interplay specifically on t uh, with mythos being um, or the mythopoetic dimension being a part of narratology. Narratology is sort of like the study of how we tell stories about ourselves and how we understand ourselves through that lens. So it really focuses on um, the interplay, but specifically mythos, I think, and pathos. Can we uh, right? find those real quick? I was get them. Yeah. Logos is sort of like intellect. Pathos is emotion ethos is something like ethics or 
it's oh excuse me it's more like um uh, this one is this one i get sort of different definitions of ethos also is what binds us as a community so the ethical dimension of ethos is like ethics is something that we would share in order to form community but it's this like communitarian idea what makes us us um it gets is is ethos and then um what was the fourth one was Uh, mythos is emotion right pathos Mm -hmm. yeah logos is kind of like intellect obviously logos is a very deep term and then mythos that's a real mysterious one to me it's kind of like as you said mythopoetic it's sort of the the narrativizing maybe of the three of those into one yeah thing i think that i think um i think bard wouldn't wouldn't uh, get mad at me too much for that um for that description so when you think about um when you if we go back to underthrow you you open the conversation asking about underthrow and talking about i i really think this is a, a you know underthrow has a lot of logos in philosopher by training and I make arguments but I will say that I understand the importance of narrative um if Bard's narratology is how to do that better then I'm trying to be a better practitioner of narratology specifically we have a set of stories about what it what America is and what how it's created it has its own origin story and most of the time that goes back to two events, right? I mean, there's there's the pilgrims and all that stuff, which is like the proto-republic. But like the two big titanic things are 1776, the Declaration of Independence, and 1789, the um, adoption of the U.S. Constitution, right? The ratification. So if we take those two events as sort of like the best origin story, they're kind of at odds, all right? The Tushin, while a masterful piece of law, a document that instantiated the first democratic republic, it is a masterpiece. It is wonderful. It ha- it And bringing the world out of these predatory hierarchies, right? But I want to argue that it's insufficient. And what what most people do, especially conservative Americans, is to sacralize it to the. If you want to change it, you got to go through the the amendment process. It's like, well, that you're locking us in in politics as a means of making social change. All right. So I want to go back to that in just a moment. But uh, so the of the sacralization and i think it's it's necessary and if in fact we see a revival of the original intent of the constitution in those terms by by good old good old you know patriotic americans sacralizing it the way they have if we're able to achieve a revival of that with the original intent i think that's a good thing so don't get me wrong but what i see is that the even the subtle imperfections of the U.S. Constitution have given rise to the things that the anti-federalists worried about, that they warned us about. Jefferson said, don't do this. Robert Yates said, don't do this. There were a bunch more of these anti-federalists who said, 
okay, you better at least put this Bill of Rights on here or you're going to be in trouble. You're, you're, you're centralizing authority too much and that, that makes mischief, right? This, boy, as it, ha it has, the Commerce Clause has been interpreted in a way that has created a lot of problems. There are other imperfections, if you like, based on our moral core that we've been discussing that have given rise to what is essentially the American empire, right? And it could be that it, there were going to be inevitable cycles of, of rise and fall of empires anyway, because that's just what happens based on human nature, based on what's in us all the time. But that doesn't mean, what. but whatever the case, we need, we might need a reboot, okay? We might need a an upgrade, taking the best of the constitution that we have. And I try to do that by appeal to the declaration story, the Jeffersonian concept of the consent of the governed. We've been talking about consent this whole time. So the consent of the governed, we got to return to that. There is not enough consent of the governed in the constitution. And that consent of the governed, if, if, if government becomes, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but in the, in the declaration it says, if government becomes destructive of these ends, namely to protect our rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, and this idea that we are entitled to, to give consent to government, then we have a right to abolish it and create something new. We have a right to exit and recreate. So I'm trying to appeal to that as a mechanism of saying, yes, the Constitution is sacred, but it ain't that damn sacred. And all these predators out here are squatting on top of it and keeping power because we're not getting, we're not, e we're not even uh, able to get back to original intent. And so what, it would, what would it look like? Let's move the Overton, mental Overton window. What would it look like to reconstitute a civilization based on the consent of the governed, which is another sacralized origin story that we have, as we should. And that's kind of why I was doing that. And that's why we're doing the contest too, the uh, $25,000 Constitution of Consent contest. Yeah. I want you to mention the contest. Um, I think it's important for, for my audience here. And then last question on that thread. Okay. Did we do ourselves a major disservice by swapping out the pursuit of happiness from, it was inviolable property in the Magna Carta in 1215 and we swapped out inviolable private property, we inserted the pursuit of happiness. Was that a mistake? Um, yeah, we went from, from Locke to Jefferson on that. Um, I think probably so. I think there, uh, I think in the bill of rights, there should have been something about property. Uh, oh, well, well, um, there should have been something about property in the bill of rights and the inviability of, inviability of property. Uh, probably. And I also think that in the declaration, um, was it a mistake in the sense of, I think this is a really good question, Robert, and I don't, I don't know quite how to answer it because in one sense, the declaration is not considered a charter document in the same way that the constitution is. If we did consider it a chartered document in the same way Constitution is, then we would have a very different looking law and all the incentives that get that are given 
What we do have, however, is the sacralization, sacralization of the Constitution, and the Declaration is sort of like an artifact of the Revolution that got us there, but it kind of stops there. It doesn't. It no longer serves as this moral and legal substrate, and that's why I I'm trying to appeal to people's patriotism to say a new Constitution might be in order, or take the old Constitution we have, restructure it based on stronger considerations about property rights, for example. So I think, yeah, maybe was a mistake to 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 replace property with the pursuit of happiness. I would like to see both because I think both are important concepts. So if they said life, liberty, property, and, and the pursuit of happiness, that would have been a mouthful and a laundry list, but it would have, it would have done a, a really good job, I think. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, okay. Please tell us about this contest that you're running. And I think my audience might be interested in, in applying. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, so this is, this is promotion of the constitution of consent contest. We're giving $25,000. Um, yes, it's fiat. Yes, it's gonna, it's purchasing powers going down by the minute, but it's still a lot of money. And <clears throat> the idea is to, is to come up with a novel constitution that creates a consent-based order based on that Jeffersonian notion. I have about 25 guidelines in there, but the winner will get $20,000. Second place will get $3,000. Third place will get $2,000. And the idea here is give us your best constitution that will realize the concepts that you and I have been talking about in this very episode. If you can do that, and we're going to have constitutional scholars looking at this on our judges. Uh, we'll give you we'll give you a whole bunch of money because we really want, if nothing else, to change our mental frameworks back to this idea of a moral order based on a moral core. And um, and then from there, hey, we may even start to try to figure out how to instantiate it. The funder of this uh, contest, the guy who contributed the initial money to the to the contest really wants to try to see it instantiated in some, some way, even if it's like, you know, Prospera and Honduras is like, right. You know, two square miles of, of land somewhere, but they adopt this. It, there has at least at the very least symbolic value, if not, uh, uh, you know, given somebody the opportunity to exit a bad state of affairs. And I'm afraid our, our empire is, uh, is crumbling and it's certainly top heavy if, and it may crumble soon. So, Creating niches or exit hatches is the idea, and the Constitution of Consent contest sort of opens people's mind to this possibility. That is super cool. Um, I'm really glad you're doing that, and I'm excited to hear how it goes. Yeah, it's underthrow.org. Okay. Yeah, underthrow.org. That's my Substack. You just sub subscribe to the Substack. If you no longer want to enter the contest and you don't like what I write, you don't have to stay subscribed, obviously, but that'll give you reminders. And you can find the top, the contest in the nav bar at underthrow.org. That's awesome. You actually um, front run my last question. I was going to say, where can people find you on the internet? But I guess it's underthrow.org. Yes, sir. Uh, anything else you want to plug there before we wrap up? And we'll also put everything in the show notes. I'd love to sell um, people a little ebook. I, I keep it at prices cheap. Uh, I don't, I don't try to profit from it. I profit from knowing that more people have eyeballs on it. So um, underthrow the book is is um, 
certainly something I'd love to put in people's hands. And I really want Bitcoin crazies to enter this constitution of consent contest at underthrow.org because they get it. Bitcoiners get it. They get the idea of central decentralization and they can extrapolate that concept to the entire socio-political order. Sounds great. Max, really appreciate you doing this. Um, we didn't cover everything, so we're going to have to have you back on soon, but really appreciate it. Oh man, it, it'd be my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.